0: Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Utilizing low-dose radiation scans that reveal cancers, cardiac issues, precursors of
1: dementia, and more. Information about early health screenings at virtualimagingatl.com. Two years ago, Georgia stunned the country.
2: And it has just projected President-elect
1: Biden the winner in Georgia. No Democrat has and won President this since 1992. It has been a 10-year project.
3: Really extraordinary development. Once a ruby red state. Years, but tonight,
2: Georgia get. remains at the center of the American political universe. Now, Democratic U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock is seeking a full term.
4: I'm running for re-election not because I'm in love with politics. I'm running because I'm in love with change.
3: Football legend Herschel Walker is the Republican trying to unseat him.
4: And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm
0: going to tell you right now, don't let that door knock hit, hit you as you walk out of that door. These people ready for somebody else to be the champion in that seat. And God has called me. And Republican Governor Brian Kemp and Democrat Stacey Abrams are campaigning against each other for a second time.
4: We know that by turning to each other, instead of turning on each other, we can turn Georgia around. We believe Georgia is the best state in the country to live, work and raise our families. And by gosh, we got to vote this election to keep it that way, y'all.
2: Georgia has become a proving ground for some of the biggest questions about American democracy.
3: Like the lasting imprint of Donald Trump. Fights
0: over election integrity and access to the ballot box.
1: And the power of an electorate that's growing and getting more diverse. Two million
2: Georgia voters have already weighed in. Election day is days away. I'm Susanna Capelluto, politics editor at WABE. I'm Raul Bally, WABE politics reporter.
3: I'm Emma Hurt, a reporter with Axios in Atlanta. I'm Sam Greenglass,
1: also a WABE politics reporter, and live from the Woodruff Library at the Atlanta University campus, this is Georgia Votes 2022.
4: I vote because it's a privilege. I vote because I want to make an impact. I vote because I want leaders who care about my future. Voting is the gift of freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice.
0: Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out to our first live taping of Georgia Votes 2022. So before we really get into it, Sam, Raul and Emma, you've each been on the campaign trail now for nine months about. And I want to ask each of you about something that surprised you, that stuck with you or something that you still have lots of questions about. Emma, why don't you start?
3: Yeah, I mean, all I've been thinking about this week on the campaign trail is how we don't really hear about Donald Trump anymore in Georgia. It's quite a change from six months ago, from two years ago, from four years ago when Kemp was endorsed by Trump. He's just not as big of a dynamic in both parties, and that's specific to Georgia in a way, because Trump is still going to battleground states around the country where his endorsees one right where his his um, influence seems a lot clearer but in Georgia Governor Kemp was trashed by Trump on airwaves um, for a long time and he won his primary and so with that that's taken the wind out of Trump's sails and it's also taken him out of the sails of Democrats who often use you know attack Trump and attack Georgia Republicans as a proxy they don't have him as strong of an attack line anymore.
1: And you know, part of me feels like we shouldn't be surprised by anything that happens in Georgia politics anymore because it's just been so wacky over the last couple of years. So I try and keep that in the back of my mind that we should just be ready to roll with whatever happens here in this state. But I will say one thing that kind of has surprised me, at least thinking back to the primary that we all covered, is so much of the focus, at least in the Republican primary, was this talk about Relitigating 2020 and the fallout from that election here in Georgia, whether it's these false claims about stolen elections. At the same time, here we are nine months later, and that comes up very little on the campaign trail right now. Part of that was the results of that primary when some of the main candidates who were pushing that line of thinking, you know, lost their primaries. But something that was so present is basically absent from the campaign trail right now, along with Trump, like you said, Emma.
2: You know, as for me is, you know, you guys have all heard this conversation that, you know, the election is going to be decided by XYZ, college educated women who live in a certain zip code. I I just feel like that dynamic has changed in that because this state is so close, every single vote is going to matter. And, And specifically what I've seen, and I started seeing it two years ago and I've seen it even more now is the engagement of minority communities by all of the candidates, okay? You guys may have heard me talk about it on past podcasts of what I've seen in the Asian American community, and specifically the Indian American community. You've seen Herschel Walker and Nikki Haley come to an Indian American mall. You saw Brian Kemp come to a Diwali celebration. You, you know, Governor Kemp was actually talking about this on the trail on Tuesday about how he went and did an event at, Clark Atlanta, he talked about how he did an event uh, with the Black Chamber of Commerce. So you've seen this outreach. You've seen the RNC open different offices um, in the Black community, in the Latino community, in the Asian American community. You're seeing that, but also you're seeing that engagement on the Democratic side, whether it's, for example, you've seen Jen Jordan, who did a full tour of beauty shops and barbershops, you know, in different parts of Georgia. I went on one of those. She had the DNC national chair, Jamie Harrison, and they were having a conversation with black voters who were just like, we feel like you only show up, you know, around election time. We need you guys to talk to black voters year round. So that engagement, I feel like is... It started two years ago, and I've seen it continue because every vote is going to matter.
3: And you mean more, I mean, on the Republican side, right? I feel like Democrats are like, yeah, welcome to the club, man. Like, welcome. You have to talk to communities where they are. But because the state has been so competitive, Republicans can't just assume they're winning anymore. And so they've had to really invest and and change their ways. Yeah,
1: and I think this comes down not just to all kinds of diversities when we're talking about voter outreach. Geographic, too. I mean, in this day and age you think, okay, if I know where someone lives, I can probably guess how they typically vote. But in Georgia, candidates just sticking to geography will not be enough to win. I mean, we talk about the Democrats, you know, winning more often in suburbs, but Kemp and other Republicans have to be fighting for every vote there, even if they're bleeding a little bit with suburban voters. Uh, You know, I've covered Democrats going into rural parts of Georgia to suck up every vote that they possibly can, because when you have elections decided like they were in 2020, by like 11,000 votes, you need every single one from any kind of person.
2: But to follow up on Emma's point, I feel like Democrats have also had to step up their game. Mm -hmm. You're right that they've they've been out there, but you've heard black
0: voters say, hey, we're glad you're here now.
3: They've also gotten a lot more money to do it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: With that in mind now, I would like to play a little game that I call what if and that's why. So let's go through the possible election outcomes next week and attach the why that may be the case narrative to it. So Raul, I start with you. If Republicans win both the governor's race and the Senate race and the down-ballot races, what would that tell you? I think the first thing you have to do is give credit to the campaign
2: of Governor Brian Kemp if he does win, because that means he defeated a Trump-backed candidate and he also defeated Stacey Abrams without a runoff. That, I mean, that's notable, you know, and, and that's going to get him, and it already is getting him a little national attention. To me, it also says that Georgia would still be, you know, the word probably leaning a Republican state. I wouldn't say it's a Republican state. I wouldn't say it's a purple state, but I'd probably say it's leaning. And also, I think it would tell us that inflation and the economy were ju- and the crime were just big issues, you know, because you've been hearing that on the trail, not just from Republican leaning voters. But, you know, I was at a at a polling location in Gwinnett County, Mountain Park Activity Center, and, and the people there were talking about, yes, I care about abortion, but I also care about what's happening with, with with you know, my money. And and I talked to a doctor who was just like, I'm a doctor. I should be able to easily cover all my bills, but I'm also trying to send a kid to college. So I think it would tell us that economy, inflation, and crime were really big issues.
0: Sam, if we get a split ticket, a Kemp Warnock ticket, so to speak, um, what does that tell us?
1: Well, first, I just want to say that this sounds like it might be outlandish. I mean, in this day and age, a lot of people are very set in who they vote for, and they vote one way up and down the ballot. But, you know, if you go to a place like Alpharetta in the North Atlanta suburbs, I found it very easy to find people who are voting this way, who are voting Kemp, the Republican, for governor, and Warnock, the Democrat, for Senate. I mean, I palled around a farmer's market for a while and within moments was finding voters who were voting this way. And I think what it tells us is, one, incumbents have power. Um, You know, people are generally happy in a lot of ways with the job that Kemp has done as governor and that Warnock has done in the Senate. So this would reflect, you know, a general satisfaction with the people who are already in office. I think it would also tell you that the Republican Senate candidate, Herschel Walker, Has a lot of baggage, and he wasn't able to overcome that when voters went to the polls and made a final decision. You know, I've spoken to a lot of Republican leaning or independent voters, at least in suburban places, who have said, you know, I typically vote Republicans. I want to vote for Walker, but I'm just not sure I can do it. And maybe they'd vote for Warnock. Maybe they'd leave that race blank or vote for the Libertarian, and in a state where you got to get 50% of the vote to win, those voters could play a role here. I think the last thing that this tells us is that when voters are making decisions about who they're going to vote for, how they weigh different issues, it's a little more complicated than you might think. Like, not everyone is a single-issue voter. So, you know, I've spoken to voters who care about abortion, who also care about inflation, and so as they head to the ballot They're trying to weigh those two things. How does that stack up for them? And how does that affect who they're going to vote for? And for some people, that results in splitting the difference.
0: All right, Emma, if Democrats win both races and Stacey Abrams becomes governor.
3: This is huge. I mean, number one, the polling was wrong, as the Abrams campaign has said to us ad nauseum. Number two, it... Fulfills the democratic theory of the case that Georgia is progressively becoming more blue over time. That demographically, demographics is destiny, and that 2020 was not an aberration because of Trump. It is the way that Georgia is moving. It would be historic. We would have the first black female governor in U.S. history, and historic um, also down ballot tickets as well, and also though it would set up some real chaos. Uh, under the gold dome at the state capitol, because if you have a Democratic governor, a Democratic lieutenant governor, but a Republican General Assembly, because it's very unlikely that Democrats would be able to win the state legislature, given the way redistricting has been done, you know, they could call a special session and take away some of the governor's powers in the next couple months and try to make uh, uh, Governor Abrams's job very hard. At the end of the day, the executive is still very strong, so she could could shake things up for sure. But um, yeah, it would It would be a little wild.
0: So now, what if we have a runoff, which many people are predicting in either the governor's or Senate race?
2: It's Groundhog Day, y'all. We're going to get the ads.
3: Four more weeks of winter. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) I'm I'm going to see my shadow, and and your mailbox is going to see shadows, and you guys are going to get, you know, tons and tons of ads. And, And and you thought we were getting, you know, some big names. You're going to get all the big names millions upon millions of dollars in ads. And I think the one interesting thing is if only the Senate race goes to a runoff, I wonder if that brings Donald Trump into play.
3: Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, a Senate race runoff without governor's race also changes a lot if you play into the assumption that many Republican strategists make right now, which is that Brian Kemp, people are more excited about voting for him and he might kind of drag Herschel Walker over the line is the argument. So without Brian Kemp, how does that play out as well? But I also wonder if there's a runoff and maybe if Republicans lose that runoff and Republicans still control General Assembly, do they finally remove the runoff rule if they if they have now lost two runoffs? Because as we know, it was created by Republicans.
1: And this is an open question too of, if there's a Senate runoff, does Georgia determine control of the Senate like it did in the last runoff? And I think to Raul's point, that is going to, amp up the number of people who are here in Georgia and interested in this race, because not only does it determine one extra Senate seat, it determines whether President Biden has control of one of the houses or both of the houses of of Congress. So there are certainly national implications, too, for what happens here in Georgia.
0: Just hearing you Talking like that gives me anxiety,
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> Suzanne. I think we all have anxiety after the, the last couple of months of this let's race. Finish so much this next week. Job. All
0: right. A big question then hanging over this election is whether Georgia is really a purple state. Right? You know, Democrats were feeling pretty good um, about these big wins last cycle. They elected Joe Biden, Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff. This election will be a test of the Democratic contention that the state is turning blue. We talked a little bit about this. So where do those efforts stand just a few days from the election?
3: I mean, Stacey Abrams' campaign manager said firing on all cylinders when she talked about their ground game. And it's really true that while, you know, Democrats may take some, you can find Democrats off the record talking differently about how much credit Stacey Abrams deserves for everything that she's often given credit for. She definitely has played a massive role in and really the leading role in raising Georgia Democrats profile and raising a lot of money, which to our point earlier has enabled them to really implement a um, sophisticated ground game that has so many layers to it. I mean, there's, there's micro targeting of voters, there's door knocking, there is, texting. There are postcard writing campaigns. But I mean, one thing that stuck out to me from to this week was uh, Lauren Growargo, Stacey Abrams' campaign manager, told us that, you know, they're using relational organizing where you upload your phone contacts into their app and then it matches you with people, with a voter file, matches your contacts with a voter file to help you uh, decide who to text based on who's voted or who maybe normally votes but hasn't yet. So, I mean, what's happening on the Democratic side organizing-wide organizing-wise, is remarkable right now. We know that Republicans have ramped up their efforts as well, but I don't, I don't think they're at that level.
1: You know, I think a lot of people think about this push to turn Georgia blue as a one-way trajectory. Like, you know, 2018, Abrams came within 55,000 votes. In 2020, Biden won by 11,000 votes, and that margin is just going to keep growing for Democrats, a one-way ticket. And Democrats talk about demographics being destiny in this state, that the changing population of Georgia is just going to keep pushing that trend. But I think the reality is there's going to be blips and fits and starts, even if that is the overall trend line over 10, 20, 30 years. I don't think it's going to be quite so consistent pushing that direction. I mean, just take this year. There's tons of other factors going on here. Individual candidates matter the national climate matters where you've got a fairly unpopular president in the White House and a midterm elections that is typically bad for the party that occupies the White House. So I think it's just a little bit more complicated than outsiders looking at Georgia following this supposed blue wave might be seeing it as.
2: And while I agree with your basic point that this may not be like '02 and '04 when Georgia really did go from Democrat to Republican a straight line. And I agree with that point. I still think whatever happens doesn't change what's happening politically here. Okay. I think if Joe Biden doesn't run again, and if it becomes Trump versus DeSantis, they're gonna be here. Okay. People are still gonna be coming in. The DNC convention may end up being here. Georgia is still going to matter. Period.
1: It's interesting because Georgia's kind of taken on the symbolism uh at least for Democrats nationally, because of what happened in 2020 and all of the focus on this state. And I do wonder, does that sparkle remain after this election if it doesn't go the way that Democrats hope it will be? As Susanna pointed, is it really a purple battleground state as we get out of this election?
3: Uh, Maybe. It's a, it's an important question, but it also is true that you know, just maybe maybe Stacey Abrams is no longer the face of Georgia Democratic politics. Way hypothetical, I don't know, but there are all these people that that this this wave of Democratic wins has um, influenced, and people who have been trained to organize and campaign and strategize, politicians who are rising the ranks, and so that leaves a mark, no matter what.
2: But you know, even if Warnock and Abrams lose. I still think you have faces like Andre Dickens, mm-hmm. you still have who who could be national faces absolutely
0: before we take a break. um what's the craziest or most fun or weirdest or wildest campaign event that you covered this year?
1: Okay, well, this actually happened to me just this week. Um I was at a campaign stop with Governor Kemp in Lawrenceville. It was a beautiful fall day, and he does something like a lot of. Politicians do after an event called a gaggle. And that's normally a word that's used for geese. In this case, it's reporters. And (laughs) it's a chance that all the reporters kind of get to gather around and ask a question of the candidate on the stump. We are the geese. We are the geese. And I. (laughs) And we're messy.
3: We are messy. (laughs) And loud. Anyway.
1: I, <laughs> Raul, I'm working on a story about why governors' races matter. And so I was winding up to ask the governor a question, his wife, Marty Kemp, the first lady standing next to him, about why governors matter. And I said, you know, Governor Kemp, you know, most people in the past, you know, might not think of the governor's office as being so sexy as like a senate seat or a house seat and afterwards i'm sitting there thinking oh my gosh i just used the word sexy in front of governor (laughs) brian kemp and his wife first lady marty kemp oops uh luckily they took it in stride answered my question and uh, i have an answer for my story but that's the kind of randomness that happens on the trail that sometimes you walk away and say oh yeah that just happened here we are (laughs) moving on
3: Um, mine is less funny, but it was, it's still really striking and I'll never forget it of, um, I was at a campaign event in early October. I was planning to see the attorney general candidate and Hershel Walker came. It was a last minute thing. I was the only reporter there. Um, everything was going pretty chill. He was meeting with voters. Um, I'd asked a couple questions, we, getting ready to go, Look down at my phone, it's 7.06, and the first Daily Beast story about the first abortion allegation had just posted, where a woman um, who says she was Herschel Walker's ex-girlfriend um, says that he paid for her to have an abortion and urged her to do it. And my editor is calling, I have like six missed calls from my editors and texts about this, and I'm sitting here like staring at Herschel Walker, staring at my phone like, all right, Um so I go to his communications director and I'm like, so Will, did you see this? And he's like, yep. And I was like, so I'm gonna ask him about that now. And he was like, or you don't, you don't have to. And I was like, yes I do. Um, he was like, or maybe you don't. And I was like, <laughs> but I do. And someone else is gonna ask him if I don't do it right now. So I just went up to him and I was like, are you coming Will, cause I'm going. And uh, Asked him and he denied it flat out, as he has this whole time, but it was just so surreal to be there in that moment one-on-one because he sort of went into a bit of hiding after that, and as we know, that was a big, that was a big moment for his campaign that set off quite a cascade, although hasn't really changed the polls.
2: I'm going to cheat and have two. The first Republican Secretary of State debate was at a distillery in North Georgia. I think a few people in the audience had a few, <laughs> and I did buy... Um, a jar of apple brandy, and I regret it because that was probably the most disgusting thing I have picked up on the on the trail this year.
3: You didn't uh, drink it at the event.
2: I did dead? not. No, okay. no. Um, you meant no, it for I later. You drank it for later. No, she's my boss. No, I did not drink <laughs> it at the event. Uh, Just you can tell record, me the real answer later, Rowan. This is
3: a, this is a family show. It's a family friendly show.
2: <laughs> and that uh, Susanna, Sam, and I we went down to Savannah for the Walker Warnock debate. And, uh, you know, we're trying to save money for public radio. So we got an Airbnb for the three of us, a big house, instead of, you know, three hotel rooms, a lot cheaper. But the house was haunted. Oh, you're on my side now. Thank you. (laughs) Sam couldn't sleep. And so just to let you know, Sam is scared of ghosts.
0: (laughs) All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll take questions from our audience here at the Woodruff Library at the Atlanta University Center.
2: Support for WABE comes from
1: Virtual Imaging, providing proactive medical diagnostics to catch deadly or debilitating diseases early, using state-of-the-art equipment to detect warning signs or offer peace of mind. You can take charge of your health at virtualimagingatl.com.
2: You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we.
0: Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022. We are taping in front of a live audience at the Woodruff Library on the Atlanta University campus. In a moment, our WABE politics team is going to take questions from the audience, but first, we are going to bring out a special guest to help a professor of political science here at Clark Atlanta University. Welcome, Professor Tammy Greer.
4: This is fine. Thank you. Thanks for being We're here. We're so excited thank you're here. Thank you. thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: Professor Gray, I wanted to start off um with something that I've been looking at, you know, digging into the numbers, and it's something that I did ask candidates about, about this gap that we've seen a couple of times in different polls where Senator Warnock is ahead by some percentage, sometimes 3 or 4%, sometimes as high as 7 and 8% with black voters over Stacey Abrams. Um, And and I took that, by the way, I went and talked to Stacey Abrams about it, asked her about it. And she, you know, looked me directly and I says, I am not running five to 10 points behind Senator Warnock with black voters. She just looked at me and and she said she believed it was because of undersampling of black voters by polling organizations. I'd love to hear your thoughts both both on her answer and also maybe some of those reasons why there if there is any sort of gap there
4: sure so um, as it pertains to the specificity of the answer um, there could be some um, deviation either way Um, so it's interesting because i think that sometimes we stick to she's a black candidate um, against a white candidate Um, and sometimes i don't know if we are clear Uh, That patriarchy is real, particularly in a former Confederate state that um, prides itself in a way on um, Christianity um, and being good church-going folk. Um, And we have to be clear, I think, when it comes to not just um, those in the white community for patriarchy. It's also very real in the black community. Um, And so to have this particular notion, particularly if you look at the way that um, Republicans, in a way, have, uh, from a historical perspective, have almost attempted to divide black women and black men, Um, And, you know, this this notion that black women are rising quicker um, financially and socially and politically above black men, then it kind of gnaws at black men in a way. So to have perhaps the first person, um, black person to run for governor inside of Georgia to be a woman, a black woman, may not sit so well um when it comes to the separation um in terms of the numbers itself yeah when you know i'm not i do polling but i'm not so big on polling because the percentage of of folks that they've polled is so small compared to the overall active voters that you know it's too little <laughs> to make uh, an authentic comparison yet as we were discussing previously you know it's who picks up the phone and if you don't have a landline, who has a landline? Um, and then if you, for some reason they get a hold of your cell phone number, who's picking up the cell phone um, right now if you don't know who's calling you?
1: So, Professor Greer, I want to talk to you about young voters. Uh, we're on a college campus right now. Um, I'm not quite Gen Z, but I'm close. Uh, and since I've started covering elections, I've always found that talking to young people is a great use of time in reporting on elections but i also know that there's this perception out there that young voters don't vote at the same rates that other generations do and i kind of feel like it's a misperception am i wrong or at least i'm curious like what do the numbers actually tell us about how younger voters interact when it comes to election day
4: yeah um, so I did my homework. Once want you to know my paper has data on it. Um, yeah, it's not good. It's not good. I'm going to say it's not good um, it, because when we look at in Georgia, um, the number of uh, voters between the ages of 18 and 40, it's about 42% of the population here in Georgia. Um, The number of voters between the ages of 50 and 80 is 42% of the population of registered voters in Georgia. Um, I looked at early voting as of yesterday, the vote total as of yesterday. Remember, 42-42, right? Um, The voter rate of 50 to 80 for early voting, 64% of 18 to 40, 16%. So from a numerical standpoint, we're only looking at the actual number um, and it, it's, you hear this all over the place, you know, young people voted, you know, the number of young people that voted last, last election was higher than it has ever been. And then the last time before that, and the last time before that, that's from a numerical standpoint, from a percentage standpoint, young people as a whole are not, um, voting at your weight. And the reason I say this, with love, of course, to you all, is that the average age of um, a U.S. citizen is like 38. The average age of um, someone in the House of Representatives is 58. And the average age of someone in the Senate is 64. So for your age group, your parents and grandparents or making a policy that impacts you, you can impact that um, with more. And so I'm imploring
3: you to do more. As you watch campaigns talk about talking to young voters, and I also love anyone from the audience to give thoughts on this when we get to Q&A as well, but like, what falls flat? What works when they say, we're really engaging young voters? What, what do campaigns maybe misunderstand about how to reach young voters? Sure, uh, campaigns misunderstand
4: that just because Gen Z and Millennials um, have had technology basically their entire lives, that that's all they need to do is to post something on, you know, the Twitter machine, or and that's going to get someone to come and participate. Um, analog is king. You have to actually touch your voter regardless of age, before you go to the digital. And for some reason, campaigns think that all I need to do is be digital, and I can tell you how many touch points I have, and how, what the voter profile is, and all of this great data. Analog is king, though. So just as you, as a 40-plus-year-old uh, voter, want someone to come and talk to you, yard signs still work right? Having someone to knock on your door matters to you. It also matters to 18 to 40 because 18 to 40 continuously are continuously told, why aren't you engaged? But then you don't talk to them.
3: It's dismissive. So you're actually saying the way to get voters is the same. Really? It's like we're all the same. Oh, or wow. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we're people.
0: Tammy, do you think that young people may stay away from voting because they may be intimidated by really not knowing all the issues for example like all the candidates you know is that sort of this perception that voting is just too hard like like you have to study for it to to be engaged it's not just easy just just go vote people say that
4: but it could is it intimidating it is intimidating because um because civics is no longer an actual class that you take all the time in high school or even in middle school. So do we really know the difference between uh, what a governor's responsibility is versus that of mm, a U.S. senator? And we don't. Do we understand the importance of the agriculture commissioner? Do we understand the importance of the labor commissioner? And because we, general we, right, the plurality of us are unclear of what those positions are, to say go and vote for some strangers on a a ballot really doesn't make any sense because, number one, I am unsure, universal I, and unsure of what actually those positions do and how those positions impact me. So we do the the game of go and vote, we don't explain the why behind it. What is the why? What is the reason? Help me understand so that the next election cycle, you're not spending so much money to do a get out the vote effort. Because if you um, educated me on the front end, it stays with me and I become a sustainable voter versus one that hops in and out based on how many times someone texts me or calls me. We
1: cover this stuff. Every single day and there are still things that are confusing and hard to understand as someone whose job it is. And I think also we forget sometimes that our heads are in Georgia politics all the time. But it's not like that for most people who have jobs and school and families to take care of and who this isn't their day job. And it's not fair to expect that either. Now, it would also not be fair to talk about college-age voters and not hear from them, especially because we are broadcasting from the campus of the Atlanta University Center. So now we want to turn over the mic to you all and answer some of your questions about politics and the election. Uh, So we are going to have a... Oh, we've got mics up here. So whoever has a question, uh, come stand up here and uh, we would love to answer it.
2: So, um, hi, my name is Niles, uh, Francis. I live in Cobb County. Um, my question to all of you is, um, I don't think I need to tell all of you. Like, it seems like for the last five or six years, it's been election after election after election. Like even at the, at the, uh, Senate debate between Warnock and Walker earlier this month, they were asking them about 2024. So my question to all of you is, um, have you guys gotten a sense from voters of, Let's voter fatigue, like voters are tired of <laughs> tired of election after election. Have you guys gotten that sense from any voters on the ground?
3: I want to say shout out to Niles. He has an amazing uh, blog called Peach State Politics. He's a, a total uh, total star here in Georgia politics. Sneaky, sneaky in the audience here. Um, but no, I mean, what I would say to that is, yes, voter fatigue, for sure. We all are tired, right? We we are all tired of the campaign ads. The campaigns are tired of the campaign ads. But at the same time, I mean, I think with this early voter turnout, I was talking to someone in the Secretary of State's office today, we're also seeing that people are aware and engaged. I mean, we're seeing presidential year-level turnout in a midterm, which is not normal. I mean, we can't miss that moment right now. Now, what will it be all in? Don't know. But it's sure looking like presidential-level turnout. And that could be a result of all the attention and all the high-profile elections that Georgia's had and all the money that's come as a result.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I hear this all the time on the campaign trail talking to voters that people are tired. But I don't think tired necessarily means, as Emma's saying, that you're going to stay home. People know what they got to do at this point. They've got the reps in. They they know the motions to go through and they might feel begrudging about having to do it again. But I think almost everyone who tells me that they're tired of all this intensity on politics in Georgia are still eager and geared up to, to go vote?
0: I think part of it is we are a new battleground state. So what people are really tired of is the advertising. We should not be tired of voting, right? It's we, the people in a democracy. So try to live in Switzerland. They go like every weekend and vote for something because <laughs> they like a small country and they are a super democracy, right? Imagine but how
1: many podcast episodes we'd have to have. I know if voted like it's that. Georgia.
0: They vote all the time, but, um, from that perspective, we're not tired, I think, of of, of voting, but just all the hoopla around it. Uh, yes, my name
1: is David Shi. I live in uh, DeKalb County. Uh, my question is uh, about misinformation or disinformation. So, misinformation, disinformation it's more or less permeating like every corner of life, basically, right? And it's 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 pretty scary because it seems like it's starting to influence public policy, and you know, po- public policies being made based on stuff that's just incorrect, um, uh, deliberate or otherwise. What do you think the outcome of the election will be? How will, how will misinformation, disinformation affect the outcome of the election?
4: So, um, misinformation only exists and is able to live and thrive like a virus when we give air to it. Um, so what does that mean? That means that, um, you know, when someone says something that is a lie, using a gentle term, misinformation or disinformation, allows for there to be an out for us to continue to have a conversation about the lie. Um, And then, you know, from a voting perspective, it's easy. Vote for the opposite. You know, For someone who is intentionally speaking to invoke fear in you, um, to dehumanize the other candidate, um, means that this is a game, a board game, rather than people's lives. Um, so I think that as a voter, we have to be brave and bold enough to say you, sir, or madam, are attempting to... Um, get a good government check from us as taxpayers and you are attempting to be hired for this job and if you would sit in front of me and tell me something that is a lie, would I hire you in the private sector? And if the answer is no, then the answer should be no in the public sector.
1: I'll also say that this is something that journalists are actively trying to figure out how to confront right now. Um, NPR has just launched a misinformation, disinformation reporting team. Uh, one of our WABE reporters, Lisa Hagan, just got hired to go help and launch that. So I think it's a question that we're all trying to grapple with. What's the best way to tackle this thing that's been around but is really not you know, infiltrated society in the way that it has in the last couple of years? Um, I'll also say that on the campaign trail, I've talked to voters, especially during the primary, when this was a real focused around claims about 2020, and you would talk to people who were like, you know, I've heard this stuff on Fox News or in the media diet that I'm consuming. I don't really know what to make of it, but it feels like there's a grain of truth in there, and so I just don't really know. And so I think that's part of what we're dealing with here is not just, you know, politicians who are spouting something, but also voters who are trying to make heads or tails in a media environment, that's really split in a way that it wasn't, you know, decades ago.
2: I've been in this business for, for more than 20 years, and I, I, the person I learned the business from was a very much present side A, present side B, and just present
0: it. Well, that's not as easy now. Context matters. I think if we can give the context, maybe we can convince people to believe in the truth or in facts. I don't know how how to counter misinformation, other than with media literacy in elementary school. And we wait a generation.
4: (laughs) Hello, my name is Jamie. Um, I live in Stone Mountain, but I'm a student here in the Department of Political Science. Um, So my question is just, can you all give uh, some thoughts about um, the voter law that passed? Maybe like, how do you think it, it has impacted turnout so far?
3: We covered this law passing. It was a a runaway train of a law, I think it's fair to say. There were like so many voting bills introduced on the Republican side and the Democratic side, but many of them sort of got molded into one massive 100-page law. And so I heard it described as a Rorschach test, this law. Like you can kind of find anything you want to find in it because it's 100 pages and it basically touches every part of our voting policy. You can't ignore the context of it either, that it happened right after uh, President Trump's uh, 2020 refusal to accept it, and Republicans politically were appeasing their base by passing something and trying desperately to avoid the Senate runoffs happening again, in which Republican-based voters um, didn't have faith. Many of them didn't have faith in that election because of what former President Trump had said. We all know this story. We all lived it. Um, so you can't divorce it from that context. The Secretary of State's office will say we need it in law no matter what. But the Secretary of State's office also, because of that election, as we know, was not driving the ship on this voting policy. In terms of how it's affecting turnout right now, the Abrams campaign is obviously focusing this on this the most, and they point to absentee ballot turnout because the absentee restrictions and changes have really been, I would say, the most dramatic. Cuts in half the window by which a ballot can be um, accepted and requested. It um, cha- you can't uh, you can't request one completely online anymore. You have to print it out and sign it. Um, adding the photo ID requirement. Um, changing Dropbox locations. Sam has done tons of reporting on that, which effectively cut the Dropbox locations, especially in Metro Atlanta. So they would point to absentee ballot turnout as the main um, change. Now, at the same time, it's hard to compare from 2020, which was a pandemic when the Secretary of State sent everyone an absentee ballot application, there's going to be changes in turnout there. And then the other main thing are these voter challenges that we just don't know at this point how that will affect. We know there are voters who have been challenged. It was already something you could do, right? There was no It was already in the law, but this law underlined it, basically said there was no limit, but the law said now it's unlimited. So it sort of draws attention to this and invites more challenges, I think it's fair to say. And so how many voters will get turned away because of that? In the end, that is something we still don't know. And even the Secretary of State has said, yeah, we need to make some changes to this section of the law because it's, it's crazy that you could challenge someone right now. And maybe a county might um, then make you cast a provisional ballot and somehow your vote might not be counted.
0: What I notice in the law was the small, tiny things. Because our elections are now really decided on the margins, right? It's that that Biden won Georgia by 12,000 votes. Well, this law took away the use of mobile voting stations because Fulton County had a mobile voting location. They would go into neighborhoods and set up, and people could just go in and vote, right, during early voting. That mobile unit collected 6,000 votes in 2020. That's half the votes by which Biden won, right? The other thing is this whole idea about food in the lines. During 2020, I went to Adamsville Rec Center uh, for early voting, and they had a permanent food truck parked that would give food to anyone that came. You didn't have to vote. It was just there right? And they had giveaways. The fire department was giving away masks. I mean, it was like a like a party to come. It was an event, you know, to celebrate. We're going to vote. Everybody come to the recreation center and vote. There's reasons to come, not just to vote. You can also eat lunch and you can get some masks and other goodies. That's no longer the case, right? You can't have food anymore anywhere near a polling place. But we'll see if makes a difference.
3: I mean, the thing we know for sure, I'll say this really quickly, is just that it, it's a lot of changes for election officials. It's been a lot for them after an already very challenging time. And I mean, this is what it is to be an election official. You have to follow the laws that are passed. But 100 pages <laughs> right after a pandemic is a, is a lot for these counties.
2: Look, I've already had one county elections director tell me this is her final election. Um, I think we're going to lose. You're going to see another turnover in leadership. Um, I did go, I went and voted on Sunday, well, well staffed and everything. And I've generally seen well staffed, but you are absolutely seeing and hearing challenges to that key part of the election system, election workers and elections officials. And that's something that, that I'm definitely keeping my eye out, you know, after this election, going into the next couple of elections.
1: Part of this conversation can be a little more complicated than either side of the partisan aisle makes it seem. Um, you know, you either have on one polar opposite widespread voter suppression that's keeping thousands of people from the polls, or you have this law made voting easy to vote and hard to cheat. You know, you've got these two very different narratives going on. And I think the reality might be somewhere in between. Um, you know, for example, we talk a lot about whether changes to law block people from casting their vote. But I think one thing that's happening is it's changing how people vote. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit more complex. Like, for example, I in the primary met all of these older voters, especially who used to vote absentee but are scared of messing up because the new law is complicated. And so they're going to vote in person instead. So I think that's one thing we should also be keeping our eyes on, how this changes how people interact with the ballot box, not just whether they go there or not.
4: And I also want to add that um, I think at times we focus a lot on the negative um, rather than the positive of it. For example, there are three weeks of early voting in Georgia um, that is not, there in other states, that there are two mandatory full weekends in the law um, here in Georgia, that during early election, early voting, you can vote anywhere in your county. You don't have to go to your specific precinct. Um, So while on, on the one hand, some of the closeness and fellowship that there used to be with the voting um, may not take place. Uh, I would um, shift a little bit or pivot to what it can do and what it does offer, and the allowance of you know three weeks of early voting, and instead instead of waiting until the last day to vote, where there is a full rush. And then, you know, folks are standing in line and then that becomes the news um, item for a very long time that plays into a narrative. Um, Yet we have all of these days prior to and do we actively engage and encourage folks to vote early um, or do we only say Election Day is November 8th? That's the last day of the vote, not the first and last.
0: That's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022. Go out and vote. Election Day is November 8th. Thanks to the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta for making this live taping possible. And thanks to this fantastic audience here at the Woodruff Library. You've been awesome. (laughs) Georgia Votes is a production of the WABE Politics Desk. Our producer is Kevin Rinker. If you have questions or comments, please email us at georgiavotes at wabe.org. You can also check out our sister podcast, Political Breakfast with Lisa Ram. I'm Susanna Capaluto, Raul Bali, Sam Greenglass, Emma Heard and Tammy Greer. Thank you so much for all your work this election season. It's been a ride.